0: In September of 1822, Dom Pedro I declared Brazil's independence. But since he was the direct heir to the Portuguese throne, and already the prince regent of the colony, some argue that he only declared independence from... well, himself. The early 19th century marked a period of bloody wars of independence in the Spanish-speaking America. Famous campaigns led by Simón Bolivar against the Iberian Empire saw the creation of new nations across the continent throughout heavy, widespread combat. Compared to these revolutionary military movements, Brazil's monarch-to-monarch transition looks trivial and tame. Over time, it became known as the Peaceful Independence, supposedly unsullied by bloodshed and battles. The reality, though, was quite different. Helio Franchini Neto, a diplomat and historian, wrote Dependencia e Morte, Independence and Death, which talks about the conflicts around Brazilian independence.
1: We have this big myth that Brazilian independence, uh, contrary to the other uh, Latin American countries and even North American countries, uh, became a con- uh, an empire or a country or a state uh, through peaceful means, uh, which is uh, practically a, a, a very peaceful divorce or a very uh, amiable divorce with Portugal, meaning that Brazil somehow was already a country uh, we already had Brazilians where uh, Portugal just controlled uh, this country that already existed, and then suddenly they just, you know, uh, lifted the uh, the rule, and Brazil became uh, Brazil as it always was uh, since its discovery. And this is absolutely false.
0: On September seventh, Brazil will celebrate the two hundredth anniversary of its independence from Portugal, riddled with family betrayals and historical inconsistencies. This period in Brazil is a truly peculiar and fascinating one, especially when compared with its Latin American neighbors. Independence elsewhere on the continent was a story of revolutionaries and republics. In Brazil, it was a story of the emancipation of a prince from his father and the independence of a country that did not exist yet. In this special mini-series, we'll walk you through the eccentricities and myths of this period, its legacy in the country 200 years later, and how Brazil became Brazil. I'm Caroline Coutinho of the Brazilian Report, and this is 1822, a special four-part series about how an independent Brazil came to be.
2: There is a myth
0: that Brazilian independence was a peaceful movement. That's not true. It was a very violent movement, and the wars of independence are the proof of that. That's Professor João Paulo Garrido Pimenta, a historian at the University of São Paulo and author of the book It Deixou de Ser Colônia, and it was no longer a colony. These wars, particularly from the chronological standpoint, were a Brazilian phenomenon, as they were not fought for the country's independence, but in order to build the country whose independence had already been declared. During Brazil's colonial era, the territory was split into regional captaincies with relative autonomy, mainly due to the sheer size of the colony. Without much connection between these captaincies, citizens never saw themselves as Brazilian or belonging to a larger state, instead referring to themselves in terms of their native provinces. With no real national politics to speak of, the independence movement led by Dom Pedro I mostly played out in the three sampling captaincies of Rio de Janeiro, São Paulo and Minas Gerais. Elsewhere, the cries of independence were not heard.
2: Some of the provinces, uh, Maranhão, Pará, remained loyal to the Lisbon courts. The Lisbon Monarchy, they're, they're still not part of the Brazilian Empire. Bahia was divided. Civil War going on in Bahia by the end of 18, uh, 1822.
0: Professor Hendrik Cray of the University of Calgary.
2: There's the uh, Pernambuco. There is this this kind of constant uh, tension since 1817 between those who are supporting uh, closer ties to, to Rio de Janeiro and those who are opposed uh, that will eventually... Uh, will lead eventually to the, the Confederación do Ecuador, the Confederation of the Equator, in the uh, second half, 1824, which is a, a movement of, of resistance to Rio de Janeiro, uh, pushing for a more liberal, more decentralized monarchy, in which a faction of the Pernambucan elite that gains power uh, rejects Pedro's appointment of the provincial president, and that has to be put down uh, by force of arms and, and a very severe repression.
0: Unaffected by the nationalism of the independence movement, after all, there was no real nation to speak of, and spurred on by a desire to continue the decentralized regime, these northern regions became financially burdened, with the higher taxes Rio de Janeiro was now demanding to build a new empire's capital. Elio Franchini Neto, a diplomat and historian, wrote Dependencia e Morte, Independence and Death which talks about the conflicts around Brazilian independence. He explains that this taxation was merely the spark that sets off the conflict.
1: This combined with, uh, let's say, the spirit of the moment, uh, which was liberalism, constitutionalism, kind of created this, uh, uh, this environment for this insatisfaction and ideas circulating, which meant that uh, the northern part of, of the new kingdom of Brazil was ready for political changes. Uh, the southern part was very satisfied with what was happening.
0: And with Portuguese forces still trying to maintain a hold of the fragmented territory, they took advantage of the strifes to align with the north against the new imperial forces in Rio de Janeiro.
1: It was a war between Lisbon and Rio for the domination of, of the land. There were signs of, uh, of uh, civil war that transformed themselves into a a national war by having each province to decide between Lisbon and Rio. And it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't like a consensus of majority of people just moving towards Rio, which was uh, kind of natural. You had dissent. Uh, You had more colors in that.
0: Having only recently declared independence and his sovereignty over the empire, Dom Pedro I was determined to unite Brazil under his crown. And with his near-absolute power as the liberator and first ruler of the territory, his strategies for doing so went beyond peaceful treaties.
1: Through the use of force in these three points of the country, you could, in a way, guarantee uh, for the moment the control of the whole Kingdom of Brazil now in terms of the empire. So you have to use the military instrument to guarantee uh, the unity of the not the unity of the empire because the empire was being created, but uh, the projection of the empire into the whole territory of the kingdom of Brazil, and so in a way, if you see Dom Pedro um, having to project his power through a much more complex and uh, and controversial uh, reality of this kingdom of Brazil, he had to use promises, he had to convince, he had to cajole, he had to promise, he had to threaten. And in the end, he had to use the military power to control the whole territory that he thought was part of his, uh, of his right to control, because he was the heir of the crown.
0: The most powerful of the northern provinces and the first colonial capital, Bahia, became the pre theater for the Wars of Independence. As there were no national army, popular participation in the war became necessary and widespread. Even on the Brazilian side, led by a monarch selected by economically-minded aristocrats, the people took arms to unite their new country. Among them was a young woman disguised as a male soldier, using her brother-in-law's name. While her identity was quickly revealed, Major Silva e Castro did not permit Maria Quitéria de Jesus to leave the armed forces, as her participation was an integral part of the Brazilian victory. After the war, Dom Pedro wrote a letter to her father asking for his forgiveness for Maria's flight from their home. She was later coined the heroine of independence and is raised up as a symbol of popular mobilization in the unification of Brazil. However, not all troops share the same story of voluntary conscription. In Bahia, a capital of the transatlantic slave trade, thousands of slaves were conscripted on both sides of the war.
2: This is a mobilization that has a number of implications. It uh, starts to um, darken the troops. Um, in principle, in the colonial period, uh, black men were not supposed to serve in the regular army. They would be in the segregated militia uh, regiments, the Enrique Gius regiments. But they wouldn't be serving in the in the regular troops. I, this gets into a whole discussion about what constitutes black, and lots of commentators remark that there's lots of paradox lots of people of mixed men of mixed race in the uh, in the regulars. But there's certainly uh, pretty clear evidence that they're excluding black men for the most part from the regulars. This becomes much more difficult to sustain amid the mobilization, the larger scale recruitment for the. Uh, these conflicts of independence.
0: In search of more troops for the Brazilian army, commander of the Patriot Forces, Pierre Labatut, was sent by Dom Pedro to Bahia to recruit libertados, free men, into the army. Being the minority in the province, slave owners were opposed to these efforts in the fear of exposing these black men, even those who were freed, to ideas of citizenship and freedom.
1: We have to always think of the threat of Harnock, uh, a fear that uh, you could have uh, rebellions by the slaves because you have this turmoil happening. So slaves hearing uh, everything about equality, liberty, and all that, they start to uh, to have these move- movements as well. Uh, so the, the threat of Haitianism, which was the image of what happened in Haiti in the 18- 1790s, is present, but it's not the center. It's part of a, a, a much bigger fear which is anarchy, which is the absence of power, absence of control. Uh, taking a look, and this happened, taking a look what was happening in the Hispanic colonies, which was not only the process of independences, but also a very uh, uh, busy and chaotic movement that generated anarchy.
0: Yet, Labatut succeeded in recruiting the slaves and free men, even those who had fled their Portuguese masters to Salvador in search of freedom under the Brazilian flag. This victory against slave owners were short-lived by Labatut, as they conspired to overthrow the general as a threat to the slavery in Brazil, even though he had never suggested such measures and was notorious for being brutal and violent towards his troops. While their freedom was never guaranteed to begin with, these slaves did hope for a change in their status or citizenship in return for fighting in the wars of independence. However, the coercive power of their owners even over the monarchy, quashed any possibilities of progress. At the end of the wars, Don Pedro issued a decree recommending that masters free their slaves who served in the patriotic army, saying that he would give government compensation for those not willing to follow his recommendation voluntarily. These measures continued to be rejected until 1888, when Brazil became the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery in response to the raising republicanism that would prevail in the years that followed. The hold of the elites on the royal court remained as one of the lasting legacies of the Brazilian monarchy and arguably of its entire history. But the main legacy of the independence is the beginning of Brazil's state building, a state that, on September 7, 1822, did not exist a country that was formed by gunpowder and created at the end of a sword, a Brazil that was unified in a now forgotten period of violence. So, if Brazil was not truly formed until after its official independence in 1822, and even less so on September 7th, why do we still recognize that day as a national celebration? After all, large states like Bahia and Pernambuco only joined the country in 1823 and 1824. In the next and final episode, we'll dive into how September 7th was either the first nor the only day of national commemoration, and how it has become intertwined with modern-day Brazilian politics. 1822 was written and produced by Eric Zachman, edits and fact-checking by Ewan Marshall. As always, we'll ask you to give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts, it only takes a second and will help us reach a broader audience. Or, better yet, sign up for The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your subscriptions fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. If you're already a subscriber, then you can give us some extra support by filling our coffee mugs with donations on Buy Me A Coffee. This membership program offers special perks like behind-the-scenes content and exclusive newsletters. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Report for more. We want to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members, Felipe Saito, José Rosi Istankovic, Gabriela Graf Ines, Emerging Market Muser, Yaden Iftar, Tonika Thompson, Anderson da Silva Kat Kramer Fra Peter Suffren, Anna Lan and someone who chose to remain anonymous I'm Caroline Coutinho thanks for listening I'll be back with the final installment of this four-part series